0: I'm going to have you uh, open your Bibles, and we're going to be in a text this, a few texts this morning. Uh, we're going to begin in Genesis 50, and uh, there's Bibles about ready to be handed out for those who don't have any, and that first text that we'll be in is found on page 38 of the Bibles being handed out. Now I need to forewarn you, this particular message is actually. A message that's going to be up here. It's going to be kind of what I, we would say as a heady type of sermon. Uh, I, a lot of what we do here on is is aiming about 12 inches below that, down to the heart. But to be able to create, uh, to address these significant questions about prayer, we have to have a theological base by which. We start from. And today is that theology. It's, it's going to create parameters by which we discuss the bigger questions in regards to prayer. So like l- last week, we asked the question, why pray? Why pray? And we discovered uh, through the message that according to Philippians 4, God wants us to pray. God is a personal God. He wants to interact with us. He's invited us to bring all things to him. All of our anxieties, all of our cares, bring all of it to us because he is a personal God. And so we're, we begin with the heart of God as he wants to hear from you. And, and that was where we began. But as I shared in the precursor to that sermon via video and very raspy voice, I shared with you what one of our elders said uh, in preparation for this series. He says, I can tell a person's theology by the way they pray. In other words, I can tell what a person believes about God by the way they pray. Do they believe God is actually interested in them when they pray? You you can tell by the way they pray. Do you believe that God wants to hear about everything? You can tell by the way they pray. Do you believe that God is a caring God? You can tell by the way a person prays. But there is a significant question that is at the root of all prayer, when it comes to the theology or our understanding and teaching of God, is if God is an all-powerful God, in other words, omnipotent, and he has absolute rule over all the earth, sovereignty, then do my prayers affect him, or does it even affect any of life's outcomes? If God is an all-powerful God, and he rules over all things, Do my prayers actually affect him or any of life's outcomes? Or you can abbreviate it down to a very short, very Pennsylvania Dutch way of praying. Does God change, do my prayers change anything? Do our prayers change anything? Well, let's begin with two primary theological truths, all right? Because we're about to go in. This sermon, 35 minutes long, is a sermon that is usually a three-credit hour class in a seminary level, all right? So forgive me, we're going to show a lot of passages that we're not going to read, but your opportunity is is that you you will have access to all those passages. If you have the Bible app on your phone, you can go into that Bible app, go to events, Tap on LEFC, our brothers and sisters over at Victory Church, their their piece is right next to ours. So if you get on theirs, you won't get the notes from this sermon. So you have to go to LEFC to get our notes. And if you go there, you will get all these references that are about to be on the screen. Secondly, you could wait till Monday or Tuesday, and we'll have it posted on our website, all of the sermon notes. And we do that weekly. Uh, So they're always available there. And then you can print them off of our website. So you have two ways to get all this. So, having said that, the question of the day is, do my prayers change anything? Theological truth number one, God is indeed sovereign, and he rules over all. And then you will see multiple references that speak to that. Now, if you don't want to use any of the methods I just gave you through the app or through uh, going to our website, you can do what others have done, just take a picture of that screen right quick before we move on. So uh, again, these are great passages to go back and read to verify that this theological truth number one is indeed true, that God is sovereign and he rules over all. Theological truth number two, God is all-powerful, therefore he is able to do anything that is within his character. It's an important truth to understand, and this is, again, dealt with very clearly in these passages God is all-powerful. He is capable to do anything that aligns with his character. Now, having said that, there are some dangerous responses to this idea that there is an all-powerful God who has sovereign rule over all. One of the responses could be this, this idea of fatalism. Fatalism would be the idea that because there is an all-powerful, all-sovereign God, that it basically matters what not that I pray at all. Uh, because it's gonna happen, because it's gonna happen. God has already pre-chosen, predestined what's gonna happen, so therefore my prayers mean nothing. So the most fatalistic idea within that is that the universe is simply God's toy that we cannot mess with. Prayer then is simply relegated to this idea of a psychological crutch. That's how D.A. Carson handles this idea of fatalism. If you believe that that God is all sovereign and over all, and then you, you then say, well, then that matters nothing with how I pray, then to pray at all is just simply a psychological crutch. It just props you up. It has no other bearing other than that. Or you could take a more positive spin of fatalism, again, not great, but it's still a more positive uh, spin of it, that, well, you can keep praying because at least it'll change you internally, but it doesn't go beyond that. It it affects you, but it doesn't necessarily affect life's outcomes. And so that would be a more positive view, if you want to look at it that way, of fatalism. But another response to the idea of a sovereign God is when you're you're having a hard time reconciling, how can there be an all-powerful Uh, God who rules over all when there's so much evil and suffering in the world. They basically, you're left with maybe it's like, well, I believe there's a God, but I, I don't see him ruling, so therefore you become dualistic. And so dualism comes into play as a possible response to the sovereignty issue. And dualism is where God isn't sovereign. How can he be with all the evil in the world? God and evil have always existed side by side, and this would suggest that the outcome on Earth is therefore undetermined. So Wayne Grudem was the one that kind of described it in that manner, and then he goes on to say that God is not the Lord over all the creation; uh, thus, there is no purpose in our existence other than to bring about the great will and glory to Him. There just isn't purpose. That's it's not at all. So dualism just basically says there's evil, and it has its domain. There's God, and he has his domain, and they run parallel tracks. That's dualism, because you can't reconcile the idea of if God truly had all power, then he wouldn't let evil do what evil does. So those are two dangerous ways to respond to this idea of sovereignty, um, fatalism and dualism. But what I liked when I was trying to figure out how do you explain something that's so difficult to get your mind around and put it into practical terms cuz quite frankly what you and I are dealing with is the gap between being finite and trying to understand the infinite. You know what I mean? We're limited. We're caught in space and time. God never had a beginning or an end. Put your head around that. And it'll make your head burn. God had no beginning and no end. He always has. Been and always will be. That makes me short-circuit trying to get my head around it, but yet it is a truth that is established consistently throughout Scripture. So then to clarify and to try to understand uh, the idea of sovereignty in light of what we experience here on this earth, it it really requires expertise that often I don't have in trying to explain. But in this book called Praying with Paul, D.A. Carson came up with three things that he uses to clarify sovereignty. And so the first thing he says is that God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture in a manner that reduces human responsibility. Okay, so looking within the, 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 the veracity of the text, all right, the whole thing, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture in a manner that reduces your and mine re- responsibility in the way we live, Okay. Secondly, because of that, human beings are responsible creatures who make decisions and choices, they obey and they disobey, and they can morally respond to things here on this earth, and therefore, immorally respond to things here on this earth. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture. Again, this is coming from uh, D.A. Carson. Uh, the human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. In other words, God isn't sitting there saying, I want to do this, but unless you do this, I can't do this. All right? He's not contingent upon you. He is a sovereign God whose sovereignty is never diminished by your and my actions, even though we're making decisions of obedience, disobedience, moral or immoral. Thirdly, he says, we also have to wrestle with the fact that God is simply transcendent and personal. We get the personal side. I mean, we're made in his image. He's created us to have a relationship. We get the personal side. But that transcendent side that, that operates way beyond our capacity to know requires revelation from Scripture to even remotely understand and the constant work of the Holy Spirit in us to Understand more clearly what is being taught in Scripture. So God is sovereign, but He is never reduced because of human aspect or living out. And we can't reduce it, and He's not reduced by it. And ultimately, there's mystery. There's mystery in this. He's revealed his character. We get that. We, we, he reveals he wants to be personal with us. We get that. But how the aspect of evil in our lives and our choices uh, respond to his sovereignty is indeed difficult to comprehend. But we're going to do our best through Scripture to get there. So this is where Genesis chapter 50 comes into play. So if you can open there, Genesis chapter 50. And again, that's page 38 in the Scriptures that I were handed out. So Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 21, little context before I go in. So you have Abraham, you have Isaac, next generation. Then you have Jacob, next generation. Jacob then has how many sons? Imagine how quick the family grows with 12 sons. So the family was growing significantly by this point, and the next to youngest son is Joseph, all right? Then you have Benjamin at the end, and Joseph was, he had that that special place in the heart of the father, as in Jacob. And, And so the other brothers didn't care so much for the special eye that their father had for Joseph. In the end of the day, they decided they had had enough of Joseph's special privileges. So what did they do? They sold their brother off to some slave traders that were going to Egypt. So they sent him away. They took the coat that had been given to Joseph by the father. They bloodied it up and brought it back to the father and conjured up a story that says he died by the the viciousness of an animal. And so in this situation, you have... Brothers who are struggling with jealousy and envy. They ha- clearly have anger going on and deceit and lying. Pride's involved. So the list of sins going on in the situation are significant, are they not? But yet, what happens to Joseph? If you know the story, he goes on to Egypt. He's found, uh, he's, he's found in favor of the person he's sold to in Potiphar, serves well A lie uh, given by Potiphar's wife, suggests that he had made advances, which was not true, so he was sent to jail uh, uh, by a lie, so now he's been brought into slavery by a lie, he's sent to jail by a lie, he's suffering the consequences of other people's actions, so now he's sitting in jail. Two of the servants of Pharaoh are sent to that jail uh, for things where they had angered the Pharaoh. And so they're in there and they're struggling not being in the palace. They're now in a prison cell. They, they come and interact with Joseph. Joseph ends up uh, sharing meanings to dreams they were having. And, uh, and then eventually they were released. But he, they were supposed to give favor to Joseph when they left. And, and so they, perhaps they would get him out of the prison. Well, one of those servants ends up dying, and and one is still serving Pharaoh, and nothing happened. They did not remember Joseph. So Joseph helped people, but yet never helped. A lot of reason to be bitter on Joseph's part. Finally, the moment comes. Pharaoh has a dream. The servant that had had a dream interpreted by Joseph tells about that interpretation to Pharaoh and says, I think he can help you with your dream. Pharaoh's dream uh, is then interpreted by uh, Joseph and Joseph becomes the second in charge of all the Egyptian empire. He is now preparing the country for famine. There's gonna be seven years of fruitfulness and then seven years of famine. So he's getting them ready for what's gonna be a devastating famine in seven years. Meanwhile, Jacob still thinks Joseph's gone. He's not alive. He's not there. He he, he goes on through life grieving the loss of, of the son that he was very close to. The other sons have no idea what's happened to Joseph. They just assume that their trickery had won the day. But then the famine kicks in. They run out of food. They go to Egypt. They come face to face with Joseph, but they don't recognize him. Eventually, after multiple occasions and encounters, Jacob is now before Joseph. The family now knows who Joseph is. What do you think the interactions would be? Joseph's life had been years now being affected by the sin of his brothers the sin of Potiphar's wife, the sin of those that he interpreted the dream that were the servants of, of Pharaoh. And he had suffered the consequences of all those decisions. And now he's the second most powerful man in that part of the world. His brothers are now before him. He has the power to heap judgment upon them. And what does he do? Let's look at the text, verses 19 and following. But Joseph said to them, because they were afraid, and he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Key verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So how does this play out in the question of human responsibility and decision-making and the sovereignty of God that's all-powerful and fully ruling here on this earth? Well, first, let's break it down. The brothers of Joseph did what was evil by selling their brother as a slave and lying to their father about his disappearance. You can just give a whole list of all the sins committed in that one act. Secondly, God's plan, however, was to provide protection for Israel, to grow as a nation without the fear of many adversaries. Now, let me explain that for a moment. You see, up to this point, Israel had the the nation of Israel. Again, it was a tribe of of, of family of Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. And so now you're in this generation. They're now growing significantly up to this point They were merely vagabonds. They were sojourners in this land. They had influence. Abraham had influence. But they weren't necessarily a threat to nations. But now they're getting large enough where they're a threat to nations. And there were many nations in the promised land at that time. And they would have been uh, attacked and provoked regularly. But God, who had made a promise to Abraham, said, I will make you into a mighty nation. A promise and a covenant was established. God's means of providing a long season of growth for that nation, 400 years of growing without being assaulted by many kingdoms, Israel grew under the umbrella of Egypt's protection. Have you ever thought about that? That part of God's sovereignty to allow this nation to grow that he allowed them to come under the coverage and umbrella of Egypt and to find safety for 400 years. Now, I didn't say it was easy because if you remember, it, got, it became difficult because they became oppressed. But their numbers were not being hindered because they weren't being attacked militaristically. They were just simply under the hardship and the thumb and the rule of a pharaoh who never knew Joseph. Joseph. So God's plan was to grow this nation. So now they are a nation. They are so big that they they became a threat to those who are covering them themselves. So Egypt became threatened by how large Israel had become. But these brothers did not know that, that they were actually playing into the hand of God. They made willful decisions to sin. But it did not hinder God's plan to fulfill his covenant to Abraham and his family. Their simple actions literally played a part of God's greater plan. So the mystery in this is, is that his, the transcendent ability of God to have always known this was how it was going to happen and how his will was brought about to full fruition through men who are making decisions that actually defied God. That's mystery to me. These brothers made decisions that were defying God's standard and character. Yet, it was the very thing that played into the hands of God in creating a space by which this nation could grow for 400 years. Now, what does this communicate? There is limitations to the will of a man praying. Or a woman praying. And, and so let me go in this again. Just a basic biblical parameters here uh, on, on the aspect of human will. First of all, we do not have. This is very clear in scripture. We do not have absolute power to defy God's sovereignty. Nothing we do in all of our willful decisions that might defy God. He would never allow a decision and defiance that would wreck his plan. And his sovereign plan and purposes here on this earth. That's very clear and and regularly played out in Scripture. Secondly, we do what we want to do, yes, but we are not permitted to hinder hinder the sovereign purposes of God. So we do not have power to defy God's sovereignty, and we do not have the ability to hinder His sovereignty and how His plans and purposes are playing out. Now, Our willful sin does have its boundaries. And our willful sin can only go as far as God's power and will have decided beforehand should happen. Yet it does not excuse us from guilt or responsibility. Now this I want to pull in very clearly from one passage. In Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 you will actually see that, that, that as Paul is writing in this text that he speaks of that, that there's this protection of, uh, on our behalf that God has to keep us from sinning to a self-destructive manner. But our defiance grew to a place where God said, you know what, I'm gonna remove that boundary or I'm gonna push the boundaries back and let us experience the fullness of the consequences of our sin." And then it says that he gave us over and allowed us the fullness of the consequences of the sin. So you see this this pattern of God. It's like there is protection against us uh, or for us that says that that we don't self-destruct. So he's he's got the boundary to keep us from hindering ourselves to a point of self-destruction. And yet, when we become so defiant, he allows that to come back and we can experience the fullness of our willful decisions. Now, how does this Impact God, uh, our, our prayer life with God. Well, we looked last week at Philippians 4, where it's, that he is definitely a, a personal God. While sovereign, while all-powerful, he is personal, and he's invited us to pray and to pray always. By praying to God, there is change. So this idea of fatalism where they said, well, then it just becomes a, a psychological crutch. Well, the truth is, yes, we do self-benefit. From a prayer journey with God, where there is change within, joyful dependence, heartfelt engagement, learning to trust God's ways as being superior, and developing intimacy with God. This happens because you begin to know and believe in His character. The more you pray, the more you pray, the more you know His heart. And the more you know His heart, the more aligned with His will your prayers will be. Let that sink in for a moment. So yes, prayer does change us from within. But the more we pray, the more we know His heart. The more we know His heart, the more our prayers begin to align with His will. And I really think this is where it leads to how do we answer this question? Do my prayers change anything. Well, first, I want to bring in two contrasting ideas and terms that we might pray by. So if we are indeed agents who can make decisions, disobey, and yes, even defy God, then there, it is true that we are willful agents who are then praying to a God whose will is sovereign. And so it leads to this. There are two ways to pray to God. My will versus thy will. The really, it really boils down to this. There are two ways to then pray in light of the truth as to who God is and who he is in his character. There is my will versus thy will. I want us to turn to 2 Kings chapter 20, and, I, and, and this will be a part of our journey of, of, of playing this, that statement out a little bit. And that's on page 269 if you have one of the Bibles that were handed out. Second Kings chapter 20. The context is this. If you've ever read the books of First and Second Kings, whenever a king is introduced, it usually begins with something like this. This king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it tells the story or just stops there. Sometimes, unfortunately, less than the other... <laughs> It says, And this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Hezekiah was the latter. He was one of those kings of Judah that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, for the first lengthy part of his reign, he was an extremely righteous king. He had destroyed all the places of worship that were towards foreign gods or idols Tore them down, and, and, and a revival had begun in the nation of Judah to worshiping God once again. Hezekiah knew God's heart. I want you to hear that. He knew God's heart, knew God's heart quite well. So much so that God was about to do something for Hezekiah that he rarely does. He tells him his future. He tells him. You're going to die. Get your house in order. Let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amor, uh, went to him and, and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord your fa- of your father David says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will heal you. And on the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. This king, Hezekiah, knew the heart of the Lord. He even had a direct word, given a privilege to know you're going to die, so get your house in order. I mean, none of us here in this room know the day we're going to die. Imagine being told, you're going to die. You've you now got day. Get your house in order. That's, that would be a gift in many ways, because then you could end well, right? But instead of receiving this and being grateful, what did Hezekiah do? A my will prayer. It's okay to cry out for your life. I mean, I, I get it. But he didn't ultimately... Surrender it to the Lord. God listened to him, gave him 15 more years, which again, another gift. You, got, you have, now have 15 years. Live it well. In those 15 years, Hezekiah went from a king who had done everything right in the eyes of the Lord to being a king who made colossal errors. The first error he made, which came right after this text, was that when the Babylonian Empire sent some emissaries to, to meet King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, Hezekiah took them to all the treasure, treasuries of Israel and showed them the temple, the storehouses, and the palace. Basically giving the enemy an opportunity to make very clear maps and clear distinctions on how to attack Jerusalem. They now had their template. Also, done during this 15 years, Hezekiah had another child. This child was Manasseh. Manasseh became one of the evilest kings in the history of Judah. All the good that was accomplished during the first tenure of Hezekiah's reign was lost during Manasseh's reign. When Hezekiah was confronted for these heirs, in particular the heir for what happened in Babylon, he was told by a messenger of the Lord, he says... Because you have done this, all that you showed them will be taken off to Babylon along with your children and your children's children. So in other words, his sinful heir was now going to create harm for his children and grandchildren. And not only were they going to be taken off to a foreign land, they're going to be made eunuchs, forced to serve another king. Hezekiah's response is telling, good, it's not going to happen to me. What happened to the king that was so righteous in the eyes of the Lord? He all of a sudden was now celebrating the fall of his own grandchildren because he himself was spared. So he responded to prayer with a my will response. Now, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're now in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go ahead and put the picture of Gethsemane up. So, an interesting place to be standing in a place where the very trees that probably were there at the time of Christ, we Scientists believe these trees date back at least 2,000 years. Those are olive trees. This is the place that Jesus went to to pray with his disciples the night he was going to be portrayed. He was going to be talking to his father that night. But could you imagine what your prayers would be like if you knew you were going to die the next day and not only that you knew that you were going to die the next day, but you actually knew exactly how you were going to die the next day. You could play it out in your mind because don't forget, Jesus was both God and man. He had the ability to foresee exactly how the next 24 hours would play out. Hence the struggle in this moment. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray, which probably is to the left of the, on that picture, because there is a large stone that the Catholic Church has built, a, a large building around that stone, but it is a stone that is indeed the largest in the garden. So off to the left, Jesus is now praying with intensity and he's invited a few to go with him. Verse 37, he says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, The hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Have you ever thought about the possibility? What if God had relented in that moment and said, Okay, I'll let your will be done? What would have been lost? In the next 24 hours. Well, we certainly wouldn't be sitting here this morning, would we? There was a different posture with the wrestling of this moment versus how Hezekiah handled it. Hezekiah just was so focused in on what he didn't want. Jesus was grasping what he didn't want, because who wants to die like that? But yet he wanted what the Father wanted ultimately which is a story of redemption that was going to be written upon the cross the next day. The outcome of a thy will prayer was that God was able to redeem all of mankind through the act of one man who was obedient to death on the cross. No ordinary man, it was the son of God himself. And you and I benefit from that obedience. That prayer of thy will versus my will. And when we choose to pray with a my will approach, who do we harm in the process? When we pray my will to God, all right, I'll let your will go and then see how it plays out. Now, God's sovereignty is not hindered. He won't let it go beyond what will... uh, Unaccomplish his purposes, his purposes will happen, but he wants us to learn that his will is better. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this, this time. My encouragement to you is we're going to be doing this each and every week with the, the sermon series, is we're going to give a little bit of guidance on how to pray throughout the week. Last week, you were encouraged to do something that I felt was very effective even in my own life. Choose five minutes in your day to pray when you normally wouldn't pray. If you took that charge, then your experience is very similar to mine. It's like even though I do a job that requires prayer fairly often, I chose a time that was very odd to pray. And I just found that I was inviting God into spaces of my day that I didn't normally invite him into. My awareness of him grew, and my tenderness in my prayers were Certainly different, less bombastic, less demanding, and much more seeking, much more trusting. So I want to encourage you to continue a pattern of choosing five minutes every day to pray when you normally wouldn't pray. But here's where I want to add to that this week. When you pray, begin to acknowledge what your will is and be able to say, Thy will. I think it's important to acknowledge. We have will in this. And sometimes when we acknowledge those wills, God's like, you know what? I will respond to that. But let your prayers become a thy will prayer. And let the Lord begin to speak to your heart through that. It's where you learn to trust in the character of God. Not just his power, not just his sovereignty, but you trust in his character. Jesus was petitioned by his 12. Lord, teach us to pray. They leaned in and he gave them this. We're going to use the old school version, but I want you to say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Your will be done, Father God, on this earth as it is in heaven. And I say this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you would like to pray with someone, we'll have people over here underneath the cross who'd be glad to pray with you and petition an all-powerful and sovereign God who is personal and wants to hear from you. Amen. You're dismissed.